All right. Well, good morning, church, and happy new year to you. Uh, it is good to be back with you. We have been gone, uh, my wife and I, over the last two weeks. This past week, we were traveling out to Arkansas to spend some time with her family. The week before, we were sick. He didn't know we were here. We were actually in the lobby uh, because we wanted to be close, but not too close where we're coughing on anybody before uh, they got together with family for Christmas. So uh, we have missed you dearly and uh, glad to be with you this morning. Glad to start the new year off together. Uh, this is, in my opinion, the best way to do so. Best way to spend Christmas, gathering together with your church family to worship. And uh, what a great way to start the new year as well. Uh, this time of the year always brings up the subject of resolutions. I don't know if you've made some or not. Uh, I know the busiest day of, of the year for gyms will be tomorrow, right? Uh, we can think of some unrealistic uh, resolutions that give the whole idea a bad name, uh, like a guy who couldn't run a 5K to save his life, but he's resolved to qualify for Boston this year. Like Those aren't good resolutions to make. Somebody asked John Piper, a very helpful podcast, ask Pastor John whether Christians should make resolutions or not. And he said, yes, we should make resolves lots of times, not just at the beginning of the year. Whenever we see something that we should do, that we are not doing, we should resolve, do it. Whenever we are doing something that we should not be doing, and we recognize that we are not doing it, we should be resolved. Did I say that wrong? Whenever we are doing something that we should not be doing, and we recognize that we are doing it, to be resolved not to do it. God doesn't like for our hearts to be irresolute. So the opposite of resolving is to be irresolute. And I know if you speak to others about resolutions, they are likely to say, good Christian brothers and sisters here today would say that they want to pray more. And they want to be in the word more. And they want to be more evangelistic. And those are all good goals. But I want to encourage you that more important than how much time you spend in prayer is how you spend your time in prayer. And I realize we can unintentionally and very easily discourage one another if we set expectations that good Christians pray X number of hours per day. We see in the life of Christ that there is absolutely a place for prolonged periods of private prayer. But what we learn from Jesus in this passage is that it's not about the length of our prayers, but it's more about the depth of them. Luke's account of this model prayer comes in response to Jesus being asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And it may seem odd that those that are walking around with Jesus would have to ask such a simplistic question like, teach us to pray, because everybody knows how to pray, right? Well, let me tell you a little story. Uh, before I came to saving faith in, of, in Christ at the age of 17, as a teenager, I grew up in church. I was at a VBS. If you're unfamiliar with VBS, it's a vacation Bible school. It's a week-long opportunity in the summer to uh, teach kids the Word. 
And I was there because the teens of the youth group were at VBS and we served. And I remember being in the back of the auditorium at the end of the chapel service that day. And uh, the guy who was leading VBS made eye contact with me and he asked me to pray to conclude VBS. That was a problem. I was not a Christian. Uh, I was nominally one. I could have told you Uh, I was a Christian and could have told you the gospel, but I didn't know how to pray because I didn't pray. I didn't pray in private, and I sure did not pray in public. And so I could not tell you what I managed to say that day, but I know when I finished, I didn't know how to end the prayer, so I said, the end. (laughs) It was fitting for the disciples to ask Jesus how to pray. Jesus was the greatest teacher. The Sermon on the Mount that we have parachuted into today uh, could be considered his master class. And so it would be fitting for us as well to stop before we get into the sermon and to ask the Lord to likewise teach us to pray. Let's do that. Father, we recognize our weakness, our neediness, our dependence on you. And when we don't recognize it, Lord, would you make it abundantly clear to us? We need you every hour. We need you this hour. We need you to open up your word uh, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We need you to give us ears to hear, Lord, that this sermon might find soft soil and take root and bear fruit. Lord, we desire that you be glorified as we just sung. Be glorified among us today. May your name be lifted up, not only from the words coming from our lips, but by the way that we live our lives. May we do so in dependence on you, seeking to uh, hallow your name. Lord, help us. I pray this morning for any among us, as surely there are, who do not yet know you as Father. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would work, bring about conviction, lead them to repentance, give the gift of faith. Help us, God, as we seek to grow as Christians individually and corporately to be a people of prayer. May we not be discouraged that our prayer life doesn't look like X, Y, or Z, but may we sit at the feet of Jesus as we hear from him in Matthew 6, and may his teaching on what prayer should look like mold our prayer lives. And may we be more faithful and more fervent and more expectant and more obedient to be faithful people of prayer. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. We often refer to this passage as the Lord's Prayer, but it would be more accurate to call it Uh, a model prayer. The Lord didn't say, pray this. Rather, he said, pray like this. We know it's not his prayer because he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He's never done anything wrong. So he didn't give us a manuscript of his prayer, but rather he gave us a model for ours. And when he does so, I want you to notice this as I spent time looking at this text and preparing, how Jesus grounds the imperatives that he gives in the indicatives. Now, if those words don't make sense just yet, I pray they will in just a moment, but I want you to follow this, how Jesus grounds the imperatives in 
the indicatives. This is what Sinclair Ferguson calls the grammar of the gospel. That is, Christ tells us how to pray, the imperative, in light of the truths of who we are praying to. That's the indicatives. This is a pattern we see throughout Scripture. We see that orthopraxy, right living, follows orthodoxy, right believing. Sometimes it's explicitly obvious, and other times it's implicitly observed. And I think we'll see both of those in the passage. We see this in Paul's letters. If you look at uh, the structure of his letters, for instance, Ephesians, six chapters, first three chapters, full of indicatives, meaning full of gospel truths. And then the following three chapters, full of imperatives, meaning in light of this, do this. Indicatives without imperatives lead to what Bonhoeffer would call in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, would lead to cheap grace. Cheap grace, as he defines it, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's grace without discipleship. The other ditch that we want to avoid would be imperatives without indicatives, which leads to legalism. Legalism that would lead us to think we are working for God's acceptance rather than working from it. And that can be so easy to do with a subject like prayer. And so we want to be careful and we want to be mindful to avoid both of these ditches. Let me give you an example if it's not yet clear about indicatives and imperatives in Scripture. Scripture tells us that if you are in Christ, you are holy. That is an indicative. And then it tells us, commands us, gives us an imperative to be holy. So to be biblical, we need to preach both. Your pastors don't want to, uh, we don't want the sweet gospel truths of who we are in Christ to cancel out the clear commands of Scripture. That would be the ditch of cheap grace. Nor do we want to load burdens on the backs of Christians that none but Christ can bear, because then that would lead us to the ditch of legalism. So this morning, uh, I pray you are not, that you do not leave here discouraged that your prayer life is not what it ought to be. Convicted, maybe, but I pray not discouraged. I want you to be encouraged to grow in your prayer life as you grow in your knowledge and in your affection for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So before telling us how to pray, Jesus first tells us how not to pray. Let's look again at our passage. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you see how he's telling you, pray like this because of your Father? Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows that you need what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. So it is a given that God's people will pray. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, if you pray, but rather, and here is the sermon title, which looks a little different than your bulletin does, when you pray. 
That's the sermon title. I don't know whose sermon to seek and to save the lost. Maybe that's like sermon number two. After me, my sermon is when you pray. The prayer life that Jesus tells us we shouldn't have is one that's for display purposes only. That is someone who likes to pray when others are listening so that they will think well of them. Their prayer life is in public like a a gushing fire hydrant. But then in private, it's like a low-pressure water fountain. And not being a hypocrite is the theme that Jesus repeatedly warns us against. In this very chapter, verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, When you give, don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And then in 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites do. Wash your face. The word hypocrite comes from this Greek word for back when uh, actors would wear a mask for the role that they were playing. And so they pretended to be somebody that they weren't. And Jesus says, knowing our hearts, don't do this. Don't pretend to be righteous. Don't pretend to be generous. Don't pretend to be pious. Be real. Don't try to impress people. Pray to an audience of one. And when we think about private prayer, notice that prayer also has this corporate aspect to it. Did you notice the pronouns that were used in the Lord's Prayer? This model prayer? Our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. So we don't want to just pray for one another. We want to pray with one another. And for church members, part of our church covenant, the fifth point, includes just this, this idea of praying for and with one another. This is how we fulfill Galatians 6.2 in part, that tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So uh, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we walking with people in such a way that we know the burdens that they are bearing that we can come alongside them in prayer and bear those burdens with them. As I was preparing this sermon earlier in the week, I got a call from John Fitzwater. Uh, If you don't know him, their family just left here after being members for about four years, moved back to Texas. He was traveling, wanted to give me a call using Bluetooth, I'm assured, and just see how we're doing and how he could check in and, and how he could pray. And I really appreciated that. He had no idea that I'm preparing a sermon on prayer and that he calls me and wants to see how he can pray for us. And he didn't just ask me how he could pray and then end the call. He prayed with me right then and there. And I'm just thinking even this morning I was approached by a a member who wanted to pray together with me and how encouraging that is and how faithful it is to walk with one another in prayer. Tim Keller, in his excellent book on prayer called Just That Prayer, I would recommend that to you. He said early on, and this caught me uh, and, and hit me hard when I first read it, how he and his wife, Kathy, every day had prayed over the past 12 years. And just that good, healthy habit of praying with others. Husbands and wives, I would beg and plead with you, pray together a lot Even if you don't have a 365 for a 365 day record, pray together. Too many marriages are struggling. 
and likely a common denominator in those struggling marriages is the lack of praying together. So let me ask you, what does your private prayer look like? I mean, that's a question that can be discouraging and don't want it to be. When I thought about this and as I prepared, this was a difficult passage even to prepare a sermon on, not because there's not much here, there's so much here. Nobody preaches this in one sermon, except me, right? You look up like sermons on the Lord's Prayer, which is not how I get my sermons, but there's just like sermon series. Nobody tackles this in one sermon. And I'm convicted when I think of how little I pull away from the noise and the distractions. Kevin even mentioned it in his pastoral prayer about in the morning, you know, do we reach for the phone or do we reach for the word? But Jesus teaches us that our heavenly father knows our hearts. He sees the real me, he sees the real you, and he doesn't push us away. He calls us to meet him in the secret place where there's just an audience of none but him. So we shouldn't seek to impress others with our prayers, with our public displays of piety. We definitely shouldn't seek to impress God with our verbosity or formality. Have you ever read a book that seemed unnecessarily long? Some of you are like, every book. Yes, okay. I expected that. Uh, now, I mean, some books, they're just, they could be three, 400, 500 pages, and it's just, it's a, it's a page burner, right? You just can't stop, can't put it down. Others, you're like, why did they spend so many pages to communicate the simple idea? They could have turned it into a blog post, and it would have saved us all a lot of time. I don't want any of us to feel that our prayers need to be book-length prayers. That is not what Jesus is modeling here. And while there is a place for those prolonged private uh, times of prayer, uh, what the concern here is not on the length of our prayers. Jesus said that people think they will be heard for their many words, but we don't need to do that because your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the first thing that we see was when you pray, and I don't think I told you this as a first point. Did it come up on the screens? If it didn't, that's my fault. But here it is. When you pray, and these are long points because this is, there's a lot to put in here. Don't be a hypocrite and don't use empty phrases because God knows your heart. When you pray, don't be a hypocrite and don't use empty phrases because God knows your heart. And here's the second point. When you pray, worship the Lord and pray the gospel advances because God alone is worthy of all praise. Let's look back in our text, verses 9 and 10. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you haven't noticed this before, you could break down the Lord's prayer into two sections of three requests. Three requests for God's glory and three requests for our good. Those three requests for God's glory focus on his name, his kingdom, and his will. But before Jesus gets to that, he first teaches his disciples about the fact they are not praying to a God who is distant, but one who is near to them. And the way he describes God is unusual for Jews coming out of you reading through the Old Testament, you do not see this referred to often as God as our Father. When I was going over this passage with the kids, 
some family devos. We were going through the Lord's Prayer, talking about who God is, our Father, and how he relates to his children, and how we have access to the Father. He's available to us. And one of my children uh, pointed out that, unlike me, God doesn't have a do not disturb sign on the door, which is true. Thank you, Emma. Um, God is our Father, and that's how he relates to us as his children. But not all can call God their Father, because not all are his children. Scripture tells us that we entered into this world dead in our trespasses. We were by nature not children of God, but children of wrath. We were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how Scripture defines our condition coming into this world. The universal fatherhood of God is not biblical. We were literally hopeless. But then Ephesians 2 tells us that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. How did he do that? Well, for by grace you have been saved through faith. How did we go from children of wrath to children of God? If you've done so, it's been by faith alone in Christ. Young people, if you say, who is that? If your parents are here, okay, I'm going to call you young people right now. I want you to hear me, young people, including my own four. None of them are looking at me yet. Thank you. Three of them. One more. Thank you. God does not have grandkids. If you are to know God as Father, it is going to be through faith alone in Christ. Trusting in his perfect sinless life that we should have lived and didn't. Trusting in his substitutionary death on the cross that we should have died but didn't. And trusting in his resurrection that guarantees our eternal life. As children, we pray to our Father that his name be hallowed. Now, maybe just growing up in church, you connect the dots and you understand what that means, but the word itself may still be a little bit foreign. What does it mean to hallow something? Well, if you think about the word Halloween, that may be helpful to connect the dots there. Halloween is on the eve, hence the een, of All Saints Day. All Saints meaning the holy ones. Hallow meaning holy. So to pray for the Lord's name to be hallowed is to pray that the Lord's name be revered as holy. It means to treat it as sacred, to honor him, to worship him as the holy one. If you want to grow in your understanding of the holy one, if you want to think deeply about what it means to hallow his name, I would highly recommend to you a book by Robert Charles Sproul called The Holiness of God. And I want you to see how all of these three requests are connected. That God's name be hallowed, that God's kingdom come, and that God's will be done. So we worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. And then we pray for the whole world to do the same thing. That is, we pray for the gospel to advance. And it's really easy when we pray just to go straight into request. 
And we have to be careful here because we can start treating God like Santa Claus, right? Like, here's my list. Here's what I want. But God is the gospel. And so when we pray, we shouldn't rust past worship. If someone were to ask you, when do you worship? And you said Sunday at 1015, I would say you're batting one for seven because we are to daily be worshiping the Lord. And Jesus is teaching us in this passage that prayer is a means to do that. Prayer is a means to worship. And then we pray that his kingdom would come. So if we think through, okay, what does it mean to hallow his name? What does it mean to pray for his kingdom to come? Revelation eleven fifteen says, there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If we were to give an exam this morning on eschatology, some might be nervous, right? Because there's a lot of things where like, I'm just not quite so sure what this means. But here's one that's pretty clear. The king is coming back. The king is coming back, and to his reign, there will be no end. He shall reign forever and ever. But his kingdom, as we see in Scripture, is one of these already not yet. That means it's been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated. It's a heavenly future event, but it's also breaking into our earthly existence now. And that's why Paul can say in Colossians 1.13 that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you are a child of God, you are now a part of this kingdom that is ever growing. And we get a little taste of the kingdom right now, but there is much, much more to come. And as Christians, we ought to long for that. And we ought to pray for that, that his kingdom would come. We want the lamb that was slain to receive the reward of his suffering. We want people from every tribe and nation and tongue to fall down before the throne and proclaim worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So if we pray this, then we have to live it too. If we're praying for God's kingdom to come, then we ought to give ourselves to the advancement of the gospel so that the king will be worshiped by all peoples. In the coming weeks, Justin's going to help us see the connection even more so between prayer and our evangelism and what that should look like. So when you pray, worship the Lord and pray the gospel advances because God alone is worthy of all praise. And then I want you to see, lastly, when you pray, confess your needs and your sins because God loves to provide for and pardon his children. When you pray, confess your needs and your sins because God loves to provide for and pardon his children. Let's look at verses 11 through 14 or 11 through 15. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Are you familiar with that acronym of prayer, ACTS? A-C-T-S? It's a helpful way to think through 
even how we structure our prayers. The A would be for adoration, the C for confession, the T for thanksgiving, and the S for supplication or making request. And when we think about uh, glorifying God in our prayers, we may be tempted to think, okay, that's adoration and thanksgiving. Like that's when I give God glory. Well, I would say it's more than that. It's also confession and supplication. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do here, to glorify God in our prayers by confessing and by making requests. That's because the Lord delights to meet us in our weakness. He he wants us to be dependent on him. In our pride, we're tempted to think that we can do things on our own. We need to acknowledge we are insufficient in and of ourselves and that we are needy people. One thing that we probably didn't pray about this morning was that the Lord would provide our daily bread, that he would provide breakfast. You may have prayed over your breakfast. You may have thanked the Lord for your breakfast. That'd be a good idea. But uh, in our affluence, we probably didn't think about, Lord, provide for me even what I will eat today. That is, unless you, like me, are on the search for brown eggs. I do not know where all the brown eggs have gone. I was at Walmart again last night looking for them. Somebody has purchased them all. There are no brown eggs. So I am praying now for that. But the kind of luxury that we enjoy that doesn't pray for our daily bread can lead us to be delusional that we can make it on our own. If I asked you today how many of you have a refrigerator, I would probably get strange responses like, why are you asking me such an obvious question? If I would have asked the same question when preaching 10 years ago, I would have got the same response, but for a different reason. They would have said, why are you asking me such an obvious, a question with such an obvious answer? Because none of them had a refrigerator, right? We were living in West Africa. Of all the Togolese that we knew, not a single one of them would have a refrigerator. But we live in, in relative luxury and affluence, and that can lead us to think that we're not needy people. But God help us if we think that we're less needy than, than those that don't even know where they're going to find food for the day. Our biggest need is to have our sins forgiven. And Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. In these three short verses of 12, 14, and 15, forgiveness is spoken of six times. And scripture uses a number of different words to refer to our sins, but the one that Jesus chooses to use here is debt. And when the word debt is used in scripture, sometimes it's used to refer to a a, a money debt, but mostly it's used to refer to a moral debt. We see that in like Romans 13, 8, let no debt remain outstanding. That's a money debt, except the continuing debt to love one another. That's a moral debt. I want you to look with me at this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18, when he used this example of of being in debt and our need for forgiveness. It's a long passage, but it's helpful. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, 
and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you are in Christ, God has forgiven you a debt that you could have never paid. He did this through the work of Christ. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, having nailed it to the cross. If you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, I pray you would do so today because there is a debt that is only growing larger by the day. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So I want you to see there are books, and then there's another book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. What they had done is referring to their sins. If you will, this is a ledger of their debts. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Names are written in the Lamb's book of life by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. For those that don't do that, there are books that are keeping track of, their, of what they have done and by which means they will be judged. That debt has been paid for those that are trusted in Christ, has been paid for on the cross. So for us who have received that forgiveness, like the parable that Jesus gave here, we've been forgiven a massive debt. Are we withholding forgiveness from anyone? Let us understand from these sobering verses, verses 14 and 15, that those who are forgiven, forgive. The reformers would say that while we are saved by faith alone, it is not a faith that is alone. Meaning, while we're not saved by faith in works, the faith that saves works. It shows itself to be genuine in the works it produces. We see this in passages like Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we're not striving to gain salvation by our attempts at holiness. No, we're living holy lives because we have been made holy in Christ. Christ. 
So if you are harboring unforgiveness towards another and you're unwilling to repent, allow these words to have the sobering effect they're intended to do, that this is not a mark of a child of God. We ask God to pardon us and we also ask him to protect us. We recognize our neediness, our dependence, our weakness, our prone to wanderness, and we ask God to keep us from sin and deliver us from temptation. Kevin DeYoung, in his helpful book on the Lord's Prayer, says, most of us, if we're honest, live our lives too serious about casual things and too casual about serious things. We fret about clothes and calories. We fuss about diets and decor. Our whole week can be ruined by a sporting event gone wrong. We are supremely concerned about these relatively unimportant matters, and yet we will start each day as if we are in no spiritual danger, as if we had no enemy, as if we were not at war with our flesh. There is a war going on. Let us be constant in prayer to be delivered from the evil one and from the temptations to sin. Church, in 2023, as we desire to grow in who we are as a people of prayer and to be more faithful in prayer, please don't hear that and think, I need to pray X hours of a day. Hear that and think, I need to pray like the scriptures and Jesus has taught us here how to pray. God knows your heart, so when you pray, be real with him. Don't, don't pray for show. God is all glorious, so when you pray, worship him. And pray for the gospel to advance. God is gracious. So when you pray, confess your needs to the one who loves you and and confess your sins to the one who will pardon you. Let us take a moment of silence now as we prepare to conclude. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let us pray. Father, We desire to be a people of prayer. We desire to honor you with our lives, a private prayer, not our public displays of piety. You know our hearts. You know our weakness. You know our temptation to sin. And God, you, by your grace, will meet us where we are at. May we be a faithful people who bear one another's burdens, who seek to walk alongside one another in such a way that we know where others are hurting and where the the load is heavy, and we seek to intercede for them and even with them. God, may we be a people who come to you in prayer, not with our laundry list simply of what we want and need or perceive that we need, but that we come before you to sit in your presence and to worship at your feet. God, we don't want to be so internally focused that we are not having our eyes on the uh, harvest that is white and praying that you would send out more laborers. We pray that the gospel would advance through our church. We pray that you would use us to see your kingdom come as more people bow the knee to King Jesus. God, when we are sinned against, May we be quick to forgive others as you have been so amazingly gracious to forgive us a debt that we could never pay. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.